Good evening. This is Cinema 60. That's a pretty silly answer. If you must know, it was a perfectly innocent lunch with one of the girls who used to work in the office. Oh. Is that so? Yes, that's so. One of the girls. Not all girls are raving bloody lesbians, you know. That is a misfortune that I'm perfectly well aware of. Hi Jenna. Hi Bart. We've got an exciting show for everybody tonight. I've always wanted to say that. I don't think I've ever started a, an episode that way before. I always feel very conscious when you say tonight because <laughs> there's always people that are listening during the day. I don't think we need to keep it a secret that it's dark out right now. <laughs> <laughs> Setting the mood, I see. Yeah, we've got a subject tonight that is pretty important to the 60s. We're talking about lesbians in cinema, sapphic cinema, women who love other women. <laughs> Worldwide lesbians is what we said before, and I, I think that was actually the best one. Yes, we've got a sampling of films from a number of countries. Every film we discuss is going to be from a different country. And that's not necessarily what the goal of this episode was, but there really is a limited number of films in the 60s, even though in 1961, the production code was changed so that you could now discuss things like homosexuality as long as it's done in a tasteful way in American cinema. And right at the beginning of the 60s, there are a few where, you know, you'd get some lesbian characters or some themes, but there aren't that many films that I could really find that dealt with lesbianism as a subject matter, especially in a non-exploitative way, especially at the end of the 60s, you, you get a lot of European films that delve into the subject and are doing so maybe not for the right reasons. Well, who's to say what the right and wrong reasons are, but there's some smut that we could be bringing up tonight that we definitely won't be, which is not to say that most of the films that we discuss don't have a touch of exploitation to them. Just the fact that homosexuality is being brought up as a subject matter in some of these films is a bit exploitative. In the early 60s, it was just you know shocking to bring up the subject and you know, get people to the theaters to see these movies dealing with hot button issues or you know pushing boundaries that couldn't be crossed before. Later in the 60s, it's definitely more pushing sexy boundaries, like showing things on the screen that you couldn't show before. Previous to the 60s, you would definitely get your Cat on a Hot Tin Roofs, your Tennessee Williams adaptations that dealt with homosexuality, uh, usually coming from adaptations of stage plays or well-known novels. I'd say you don't get many hints of lesbianism in films earlier, at least American films earlier than the 60s. Well, like in the 30s and stuff, you you do. but Yeah, I mean, you, you imagine in uniform is a famous German film from the 30s that deals very directly with the subject. You know, they're pretty few and far between. But now, you know, this opening up, this breaking down of the production code is allowing the subject to be dealt with more directly in American cinema. So we're going to talk about a few of these films and 
what I had realized is we've done an episode on Tennessee Williams. We've talked about Funeral Parade of Roses, for example, and, you know, some other things. But we really have not seen too many women in love with each other in the films that we've discussed so far. So I thought it'd be good to show that side of things. The only one I could come up with really was that the Polish film Passenger, the Andrzej Monk unfinished film that we talked about a long time ago. Yeah. It's a sort of an untapped subject for us. So we're going to give... We're going to test the waters, right, Bart? Yeah, we're going to experiment a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to mention that, you know, some of the... just This is like an overarching thing to keep in mind, which I think is kind of interesting because, yeah, as you mentioned, we this is a subject that doesn't come up terribly often. You said it was very important to the 60s, and I guess it's important because now we're seeing it emerge, but I don't know if you had more to say about that. But um, 1969, right? That was the the Stonewall riots in, in America, New York specifically, mm-hmm. which is credited as being one of the first very public acts of you know gay rights. And in the 60s, you actually find a lot around the world, you're finding that not that people are accepting homosexuality because they're absolutely not, but that homosexual activity does start to become legal throughout the world during the 60s. But when I say that, that's not obviously like like a switch wasn't flipped and everyone was like cool with it. You know what I mean? Like it's just that you, you didn't get like thrown in jail for the rest of your life. Only for five years, you know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> like, like these sort of things were um, were still incredibly rough and it was definitely taboo. And if you were found to be gay, uh, even if you weren't literally thrown in jail, your life was sort of ruined. You know, we find that especially and there's movies about this, too, that we can we'll talk about in another episode. But for uh, draft dodging if somebody uh, tried to claim that they were gay, it ruined their life. And even actors playing roles that were implied gay or gay would sometimes come back and bite them on the ass. So, you know, it's, it's a sort of weird dance that was happening in the sixties where, you know, you had all these artistic spaces that were gaining a lot of traction and gaining popularity and things were very much, they were open, but they were sort of still unspoken. So it's definitely an interesting time to sort of look back and see what people managed to get away with and what they didn't and what they were focusing on during this time. It also seems like talking about homosexuality amongst women is a very different subject than talking about it amongst men. I mean, in the UK, it was, I think this was right. It was legalized in the sixties in the you know mid to late sixties for men, but for women, it was never illegal. You know, it's always been fine for women to demonstrate homosexuality in public. Yeah, there's a very, there's a weird, um, if you're look too looking at like all of the, what laws were changed, like I'm looking at this, there's a website, equaldex.com, just looking at their timeline of, of what was happening in the 60s. And there's a couple of countries like Cameroon, I'm looking at right the second, where homosexual activity becomes, uh, it's illegal for men, but females are legal. So I don't like it's this bizarre. I honestly think that it's really born out of just the fact that men make the laws and men couldn't understand what women could do anyhow in the bedroom. So they didn't know what there was to make illegal. So, you know, I don't know. It's a weird or if it was just like, you know, their own insecurity and fear of pleasure, I guess. But 
Yeah, it's it's strange. So women could always sort of get away with being roommates, which happens a lot in this in these movies that we're going to start talking about. But there's definitely still a lot of bias and these movies aren't I wouldn't call them empowering in any sort of way. Maybe some of them in a sidesteppy kind of way are, are fairly positive, but a lot of these deal with really like the the negativity and the fear of being outed. And not that it's a, a bad, it's like the fear of what society thinks, but also just the guilt of being gay, which is, you know, s- stupid, but, <laughs> but when you're like being like peer pressured by the entire world, then obviously you're going to feel guilty about it. Unfortunately. I do like that these films do have, there's kind of an arc to them. Each one is a little bit more progressive than the last. And, it, you know, it's probably just has partially to do with the fact that we're dealing with these films chronologically and minds were opening and people even understanding for the first time that homosexuality exists. Your neighbor might be homosexual. You know, your best friend might be. People's eyes getting open seems to lend a sort of, you know, it's it's sort of, it's definitely baby steps, but there is kind of a progression here. I mean, no spoilers, but by the end of the episode, we actually get a definitively positive view of the lesbian experience, which is really exciting. But it it definitely doesn't start that way. We start in a really negative place with the Children's Hour, 1961. Directed by William Wyler and starring Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine and James Garner. All of your favorite people are in this. I love Shirley MacLaine, but yeah, (laughs) those other two. But it sort of works for the movie in a way to sort of hate the heterosexual couple in it. But anyway, first things first, this is based on a Lillian Hellman play that William Wyler had actually made much earlier in the 30s called These Three. It was rewritten to be a heterosexual love triangle, but he decided, hey, it's 1961. I can actually present this play that he obviously must have liked very much in its original form and deal with the homosexual themes that are in there. Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine are you know, old friends, friends from college who decide that they want to open a uh, private school for girls. When we start the movie, it's been running for uh, for a while, for several years, and they're finally starting to make a little bit of money from it. It seems like the school is on its way to becoming a success. It's just the two of them as teachers and uh, Shirley MacLaine's Aunt Lily, who are the teachers there. And she's a stage actress who's kind of aged out of acting anymore and she's this is sort of her final stage of her life as a teacher but she's still kind of a prima donna and not a very likable person audrey hepburn is dating the local doctor played by james garner and there's one particularly awful child at this school comically awful yeah um mary is her name i didn't even write down the name of the little girl who plays mary but uh karen balkan she does a good job being the worst 
little girl you could possibly imagine. I don't know, was she supposed to be about 11 or something? This little girl is so terrible, you really want to, like, reach out and slap her <laughs> yourself. Like, even if you're against slapping children, like, this child definitely deserves to be slapped. Her grandmother is a is a wealthy heiress, and she's just used to getting everything she wants, and she's a bit of a troublemaker, and whenever she's punished, she feels like she shouldn't be, and, and sort of has it out for Martha and Karen, uh, the two, Shirley and Audrey. And after one particularly um, severe punishment, it was just a spanking, she decides to start a rumor and tells her grandmother that strange things happen in the bedroom of Karen and Martha when the girls are going to sleep. And of course, the vagueness of this accusation and the fact that the grandmother can't possibly believe that Mary would understand anything about this sort of thing enough to to make up a rumor like that automatically believes it. And this rumor destroys the school. And it's uh, the movie is just them trying to figure out how to get out of the situation, what to do with themselves now that their names have been besmirched because nobody wants their little girls in a school that's run by lesbians. Whether that is or is not true in the case of these two ladies isn't necessarily a matter of discussion in the first two-thirds of the film. It's just the accusation is enough to ruin their, their lives. By the final third, we realized that Shirley MacLaine, in fact, has been having feelings for Audrey Hepburn all these years. But, uh, I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think we kind of have to talk about that because we need to discuss that, yes, there is actual lesbian content in this film and not just, you know, quote-unquote horrible accusations. This was always a a film that I really liked a lot, and a lot of it has to do with the sort of over-the-top melodrama of it. I mean, it doesn't really veer into camp at all, but it's it's pretty stagey. It's obvious it's based on a play. There are some exaggerated performances, particularly by Faye Bainter, who plays Aunt Lily. This is the second time I've seen it. The first time I saw it uh, was quite a while ago, and I hadn't quite developed my dislike for uh, for Audrey Hepburn and James Garner yet. But <laughs> So going into this film uh, this time, I found the first part of it a little bit insufferable, just watching the two of them coo at each other and plan on getting married. And, you know, there's a whole discussion of how Karen, Audrey, will still continue to to work at the school when they're married and, and all of this stuff. But, you know, none of that seems to, even though Audrey is ostensibly the, the main character in this film, it really is, you know, Shirley MacLaine, who's you know, emotional drama is, uh, we're, we're invested in through the, the course of this film. When things start to fall apart for them, the movie really does get kind of exciting. And, the, you know, the awful child and the, the small town rumor mill and, and all of it makes for really good drama. I like this film. It's weird. It's a weird film. <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's so strange to watch this and think about the audience in 1961 watching this and what they would be thinking and who they would be identifying with because I feel like the casting of these two very attractive women you know obviously the movie is telling you to be empathetic towards them and you know there is there's plenty of outs like for the first for the majority of this movie it's very much a a movie about social pressure and then it finally makes a decision really late in the film that 
you know, ties it all back to homosexuality. So it's very much like exploring gender roles in general. Like, you know, there's a lot about these sort of masculine assumptions of marriage, like this idea that like a woman who doesn't want babies immediately, like might be a lesbian or a woman who prioritizes her career before marriage must be a lesbian, <laughs> you know, cause James Garner, like he abandons Audrey Hepburn. Eventually he sort of has her back, but he, he doubts and which is what happens to everyone around them. And that's when it really gets depressing. It's like, it, you get really frustrated watching this at the end, especially when, people start to come around and, and try and apologize after the fact, after everything's been ruined. Like they end up going to court and Shirley McLean's aunt who knows that she, you know, knows at least, you know, they haven't done anything, <laughs> that she, uh, you know, hasn't acted on anything, but she refuses to show up in court and speak for her niece. So they end up getting condemned and like, and there's this really creepy, like, like the whole thing with the children, which is again, the majority of this movie, like, I, like I that child is so frustrating and so god awful you know it's like the type of thing if I saw that child on the street I would like have a really hard time not wanting to spit in her <laughs> face because <laughs> she's just so cartoonishly horrible but you know the stuff that gets really creepy is not so much the child because at the end of the day it's still a kid and you sort of see this evolution of how she comes to this conclusion where she doesn't actually know what she's saying but she knows that like she's heard snippets here and there uh, and she sort of heard the way that people said it, you know, which is also an interesting topic. It's like that this little girl doesn't know any, doesn't know what a lesbian is, but she knows that when someone says lesbian, they say it with a voice in a hushed tone, or they, they, they imply like, oh, she seems to enjoy her work. You know, it's like the way this intonation of how things are said, the little girl picks up on and she's like, you know, a, a clever enough bully to realize that that's a bad thing. Which is not to suggest that the word lesbian is used at all in this film. Neither is homosexuality. I thought lesbian was used in this film. No, it's it's 1968 before we get that word in any of these films. Really? Or at least in English, yeah. But there's a confession scene where Martha declares her love for Karen, so there's no ambiguity there. It is what it's about. That's the thing, is like to finish what I was saying the stuff that gets really creepy is after the fact when they're sort of left alone and they both have to deal with this and the pressure of, of the fact that nobody ever wants to see them and they have all these creepy men driving up to the house just to stare and things like that and like that's really terrible <laughs> that is more you know compellingly sympathetic towards homosexuality than the rest of it you know like the stuff with a kid is just sort of like it's cartoonish but i also like i can't help but think that like i mean number one i find this movie to be really puritanical it forces its main well i, I get how much do we want to spoil <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have a happy ending let's put it that way and it feels punishing and i don't like that it has to do that after it makes this whole point to be sympathetic it's still in the at the end of the day says like, but being a lesbian's bad. That does make this movie especially problematic. The end where the lesbian is the problem. We have to get rid of her is the solution to a 1961 movie about lesbianism and most likely a early 30s play about lesbianism that we can be sympathetic towards her, but she's a problem and we have to get rid of her. Yeah, she, she's sick. 
yeah. you know it's like this very much like put her down kind of. <laughs> you know i'm only laughing because it's just so horrific I'm not, I'm not laughing at like uh that that concept but i also like i have a hard time watching this and not thinking like how much more compelling this would have been if they just had been both of them had been lesbians or bisexual like if they had been openly engaging not in front of the children so much not like you know anything that's like uh messed up but you know if they actually were just a chill couple you know like i feel like it didn't need this whole like oh but don't worry at least one of them's straight you know like which again goes back to it it's like okay but uh, am i meant to feel i like i don't feel as bad for hepburn in this but then again she's at least the only person who's loyal you know at least she her response isn't to split up forever she even like suggests to shirley mclean well how about we just move the two of us we'll just go move somewhere else and we'll we'll start a new school and change our names so she never at, at any point thinks like well you know maybe you are a lesbian I, i'm getting out of here or like you know she she doesn't abandon her friend which i think is nice yeah i mean part of what destroys her relationship with james garner is not just that he doubts he asks her to deny that she's a lesbian and she does. And that sort of ends things with them. But it's also like, it's her doing to send him away. He's shown himself to be a weak man, but she wants to stay loyal to her friends. So the troubles that Martha will have to go through as a result of being a lesbian, it's more important for her to stick by her in, you know, in these times. And, uh, and so you do, respect Karen at the end for for that decision although <laughs> I don't that expression on her face the the end of the film is Audrey Hepburn walking away from the funeral with sort of a sense of pride and determination on her face like I have learned a lot from this awful situation and I'm going to take this lesson I've learned and and be a better person because of it and that almost leaves me with a worse taste in my mouth than the yeah. actual, like, having to do away with the lesbian. And that comes up a lot in these movies, that kind of, like, you know, well, I I, I saw the other side of it, and it's really terrible, and boy, I'm glad I'm not gay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the lesson they learned. Yeah. This movie is definitely an enjoyable film to watch, despite the problematic nature of it, but it's also you know, for 1961, a brave film to to tackle this issue headfirst and to put homosexuality in people's faces. It was a popular film. I mean, I don't think it was a hit, but it may have been more talked about than seen uh, at the time, but it definitely was a big topic of conversation in 1961-62. And, uh, you know, everybody, you know, whether they'd seen it or not, had a, had something to say about the children's hour and the subject matter of this film. So again, here's here's another 60s film that needs a serious rewrite, but I still can appreciate for the baby steps it's taking in a positive direction. Yeah, I mean it's you know, that's that's the type of thing where it's like representation's worth something. It's <laughs> not the best representation, but there is I mean there's enough that's that if you go in there with the, you know, a decent heart, you you might at least come out thinking boy, uh, people who are, who are gay have it rough. You know, like if, if you get that much out of it, you know, if, and as, as a 60s audience, like I think that's better than, you know, kill them all. <laughs> yeah. So in the wake of the production code finally allowing 
direct reference to homosexuality in American motion pictures. There are a fair number of films that started coming out, not things that I felt were worth watching and discussing for this episode because it's just a character like Barbara Stanwyck in Walk on the Wild Side from 1962. She's a madam and has a thing with her top girl, Capuchin, and The Balcony from a year later, which was a more independent thing based on the Jean Genet play where Shelley Winters is kind of the same character, the lesbian madam in a brothel who is going steady with one of her girls. That was an edgy independent film, so probably could have gotten away with that subject anyway, but it's just showing that the subject matter was getting a lot more attention. My favorite early 60s example, it's The Haunting, where Claire Bloom is, you know, she kind of just happens to be a lesbian. It has nothing to do with the plot of this horror film, this, you know, based on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. I never read the original story, but the character in the original story was a lesbian, and she you know, talks in, in The Haunting about just leaving her girlfriend. So it's very you know, specific without it being a problem in The Haunting, which I've always kind of appreciated about that film. It's also technically a, a British film. It's set in New England, and all these British actors are doing American accents, so it doesn't really feel like a British film, but that's also why it might be a little more progressive anyway than uh, than some of the American things coming out. But yeah, the early 60s had had a number of films that could have been discussed, but we wanted to span the decade a bit more and and get to some other countries and and how they were representing lesbians on screen. And that brings us to Japan. And Manji from 1964. Also known as that one movie in the video store that looks like a swastika. (laughs) Well, that's what Manji is that's the japanese word for swastika and this is directed by yasuzo masumura who did blind beast which we discussed in our 69 japanese episode and this one is even crazier than that (laughs) one considering it's an earlier film i found this to be like way more like sorted to the point that i actually find it like how could a movie that comes out today get away with as much as this gets away with this movie is great i love this movie (laughs) (laughs) and and i don't mean that it's like it's not that there's anything in here that you've never seen before but there's just like there's certain beats that you're like wow like you really went there it's very hard to sum this one up there is a board housewife named sonoko and she's an art student and she wants to draw her ideal nude and she gets made fun of by the entire school because it looks like another woman in the school, a younger girl named Mitsuko. So there's this rumor that gets started about her. They claim that they're both lovers and she is being blackmailed by the principal because she's like the man that she's marrying is someone that the principal wanted his own daughter to marry there's some or like he wanted his son to marry her there's some sort of reason for why this principal's blackmailing her 
if that's even what's happening, there's so many twists and turns in the story that that's, you know, that's the story we get initially, but. Oh, this is totally like throwaway. Like none of this matters. Like this is, I'm not, this is the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Sonoko's object of desire is so untrustworthy that really anything that she says can't be believed. And this is just one of her stories. Yes. Yeah, so like Sonoko like befriends Mitsuko. And says, hey, everyone says we're, like, lovers, so let's be buddies. And she does, like, acknowledge that this woman is basically her ideal nude. (laughs) (laughs) She thinks she's very beautiful. Yada, yada. She invites her over to her place to come see the finished piece. There's, like, a lot of, like, flirting. And then one thing leads to another and uh and sonico rips all her clothes off you know as (laughs) as you do (laughs) yeah she's like they're sitting on the her marital bed and then she tells her to get naked and she says you have an exquisite body which she could have figured out just from how she was wearing the dress but of course she has to see it and then she like flips out she rips all her clothes off and she's you know mitsuko is like wow this is messed up and then Sonoko is like, oh, well, you, I thought we were friends. <laughs> you promised not to hide and then, like, basically sexually assault her. Uh, and then, yeah, like, now they they become this, like, torrid love affair where Mitsuko is calling her Nichan, which is, like, sister. I guess that's what you call your, like, older lesbian lover and your sister. <laughs> <laughs> So she's married to this guy, Kotaro, who is, you know, realizing that his marriage is falling apart and that Sonoko doesn't love him. And Mitsuko has this boyfriend, fiance, who starts to blackmail everybody, wants everyone to sign like a contract. And eventually he gets Sonoko to sign a contract with him that says we both love Mitsuko so much that. If she leaves one of us, we both have to kill each other. (laughs) Or at least not see Mitsuko anymore. But you have to die for it. Like, there's, like, there's definitely death involved. And, like, he's crazy. Sonoko's husband then eventually starts to have an affair with Mitsuko because he's jealous. And then the fiancé, Ijiro, is is the fiancé, Ejiro. He's also, like, impotent. That's why he's blackmailing everyone. But here's the thing that I thought was insane and that I can't imagine a movie doing this right now without being a porn is that there's a scene where Sonoko is in bed with her husband and Mitsuko and the husband and Mitsuko have sex next to her as she is drugged. Yeah, in and out of consciousness. But she's aware. And then... She gets up and then she realizes, and then Mitsuko suddenly realizes she has power over all of them and says, well, if you both love me, then you will take this drug and not question it. And so now every single night, Sonoko and her husband (laughs) are being drugged while being like raped. Who knows what's happening? Either Mitsuko is going off and having an affair with somebody else, or I mean, they're just like, they're unconscious for the entire day and they have no idea what's going on, but Mitsuko has told them to do this. So it's fine. And then it gets crazier from there. Yeah. It's, 
<laughs> it's a nutso movie. Think of any movie about sexual obsession that you've ever seen and multiply that times 10. Like this has everything, like every crazy permutation of love and sex and death. Yeah, I don't I don't even know if there's much love involved. It's just sexual obsession and death. And it's so serious. Like it's so hysterical. Well, I, I laugh throughout, so I don't know. It's campy as shit, but the movie is not funny. It, it's funny to watch, but the movie doesn't have jokes. <laughs> yeah. It's so dryly over the top that you realize it's meant to be absurd and amusing, but it doesn't feel like a comedy in any way. I mean, there's some there's some lines for sure. I mean, there's things that made me go like, what the hell? Like, this is another movie where half of my notes are just question marks. Like, I don't even know what I was writing that about, but like, that was all I could write at the time. But I love there's that scene where uh, Kitaro is trying to tell uh, Sonoko, like, you're being horrible to me. Like, I'm your husband. You know, and there's definitely this whole, like, again, this gender power struggle happening where, you know, the man is meant to be the head of the household. And here's Sonoko, like, totally undermining him, not only by taking a female lover, but also just by, like, completely disregarding him. And they have this scene where they're both sitting they're on their bed and he's like, can you stop having sex with women in my, in our marital bed? And her response is no. Also, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And then the Ejiro's whole, like making everyone like sign a contract. If like, if, if his girlfriend isn't happy 24 seven, we have to all kill ourselves. And like, I can't wait to die for her. And like this sort of bizarre I don't even know what it's insane. This movie. I don't even, what does this movie even have to say? I mean, like Yasuzo Masamura is, he's pretty much about shock value. Yeah, but not, I mean, yes, it's, it, this is definitely an exploitation film and it's meant to shock, but it's also all of this fever pitch. It's all just so completely over the top. And it's very close to the tone that's in Blind Beast, too. It's, you know, just the sexual obsession that goes so much further than any actual human being you've ever met could ever possibly take it. You know, in a way, it's sort of exploring, well, here's what you can do on film. You know, here are the worst thoughts you've ever had, and I'm going to show them on screen to the utmost degree. Like, I think that's his point, more than just trying to, like, shock and titillate. He's exploring the extremes of human behavior, which is interesting, I think. I mean, I love – I haven't seen that many. I think this is, I think, my the fourth film of his I've seen, and I've loved every one. And it really, like, just goes in this really over-the-top direction. I think in showing the extremes of human behavior, though, it sort of invalidates this film a little bit as a lesbian tale well, we should also mention real quick that this is based on a book from 1928, or it was a serial format for a magazine. This is written by Junichiro uh, Tanazaki, who is like a celebrated Japanese author. I was on the shortlist for Nobel Prizes, I think, <laughs> in the 60s, actually. So this isn't like something that Masamuro like just came up with. This is like a celebrated, culturally significant novel that seems to be i haven't read it it seems to be about as insane it's got to be if it's been remade i think three times after this and if each one of those versions thinks it can push 
things a little further. I mean, I can't imagine what they've done in the most recent version of this. Have you seen the remakes? No, no. I've, as far as I know, they're not even you know, readily available in the U.S. I could be wrong. It was also Kaneido Shindo who adapted this novel for this 1964 version. And he's a pretty great director in his own right, like two of the best Japanese ghost stories of the 60s, Onibaba and uh, Kuroniko are, are both by him. I don't know if you've seen either of those, but this is sort of an amazing pairing of 60s Japanese auteurs to create this really over-the-top masterpiece. But what does this say about lesbians? I feel like this just reinforces the same old, like, if you're gay, you're a man, or you want to be a man. I don't know that this says anything about lesbianism. I think it just shows the capacity of human beings for lust and that it can be so overpowering that the object of lust no longer becomes important. It's not about whether it's somebody of the opposite sex. None of that matters. It's just this obsession where you have to possess this person that you desire. And this movie takes it to the extreme. The gay aspect of this film, even though it takes up, you know, this relationship between Sonoko and Mitsuko takes up the, the first two thirds of the film. Like, their relationship is what this movie is about. It just gets even crazier later on with more people involved. So it's definitely in the gay-themed film category, but there's no discussion of what it... The whole beginning of the movie, everyone is, is ostracizing her for, for potentially even having a crush on a woman. So, I mean, there's definitely something being said there. Like, they make the point to say that this isn't okay... And then here they are sort of going into this, like, really, it gets so seedy and it gets so, like, insane and crazy and amped up. Like, to me, it makes more stereotypes than it dispels. Like, there's really nothing to latch onto here as far as empathy or, like, normal hum human understanding. Like, nobody here is is a human. But I'm with you. Like, it's cool that they let it happen. Like, there is a degree of, like you know, the husbands are not so much worried about them being gay. They're just annoyed that they don't have the power. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely different from like a Western lens, but at the same time, it's very, the whole thing feels so masculine. As you're saying, it's hugely controversial that these two women are having an affair and it's all the talk of the art school, but the film is, seems to be saying, and this is probably the most generous interpretation of what it's saying is that, Oh, you think this is unnatural? Well, you're wrong. Just wait. <laughs> I will show you unnatural. And uh, he succeeds. I mean, I guess there is a degree of like people dying with dignity and then one person not at the end of this. I, As far as the ending goes, I don't know what the morality it's conveying is. There seems to be no morality whatsoever in this film. And that's part of why it's such a pleasure. Well, I kind of think it's like the straight people leave with leave this planet with dignity or at least the straight choice or as the other person is left to sort of, you know, wander the earth with only the memories and the and the horrors. That is kind of the Japanese take on uh on the children's hour, isn't it? The punishment for the it lesbian kind of is, is to it? is not to have to die, it's to have to stay alive. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> After Manji, we traveled to Sweden. In America, Swedish films were particularly renowned. You know, most imports could show a lot more than American films could, but Sweden was particularly notorious for getting a lot of sex in there. And uh, in 1965, I actually am not sure if 
Katorna, directed by Henning Carlson, got much of a release in the U.S. I had never heard of it, but, you know, it's kind of notable as sort of a Swedish take on the children's hour in a way. It's also based on a play and uh, it deals with this house of washerwomen and they don't like their boss very much, played by Eva Dahlbeck. She's in a lot of Bergman films and she's sort of got the old school, you know, Hollywood glamour. He Bergman tends to use her in that way, the sort of upper class pristine woman who's sort of above it all. And that's sort of what she brings to her role as the manager of this house of washerwomen. Turns out that she's a lesbian. We don't necessarily know that from the get-go. I don't think she is. Marta? Yeah. Well, the story of the film is that one of the washerwomen, Rike, is, uh, according to the other washerwomen, a drunken slut. But, you know, she's, she's definitely got her problems. She goes on these long benders and doesn't show up for work and you know is sleeping with all sorts of men and by the end of it when she finally sobers up she is a total wreck and needs some comforting so she comes to marta who is more than happy to comfort this young beautiful washer woman um and it turns out that this is actually not even the first washer lady that marta has taken a liking to and had live with her to sort of help her out and whether marta is demanding anything sexually from them is unclear at the end. She ends up being such a sympathetic character that you get the impression that she's not making these women that she's sort of adopted, that she's helping out do anything that they don't want to do. But the fact that Rika knows that Marta is gay and she hates herself and hates the world and just wants to lash out, starts accusing Marta of having done sexual things to her especially after one of the other washerwomen watches Marta bathe Rika in the shower and in a... Uh... Yeah, like <laughs> Christoph Kameda, like yeah. jazz lesbian shower bathing. Yeah, an amazing score. By the end of this, we should gather together all the Christoph Kameda soundtracks that we haven't uh, discussed the films for and do them all together because he's great. And he died at, right at the end of the 60s. So his entire career is the 60s. And it's such great Polish jazz stuff. He's, he does a soundtrack for all of Polanski's 60s films and half the Polish films that we discussed in our Polish episode. Yeah. But yeah, great soundtrack and uh, kind of a stagey presentation. But it's a good drama. And the atmosphere of this washer house and the way that these washerwomen interact with each other is really pretty interesting. And, you know, you've got a 10 or so of them and they all get their own little backstory. There's you know maybe three or four others that you really start to get to know a little bit. But just watching them interact is pretty interesting and watching how the hysteria around Rika's accusations of Marta sexually abusing her just gets blown up into this big thing where they're all asking Marta to quit. But it's really sort of based on the fact that they've never really liked her because she seems cold and distant. She's not the fun boss. Yeah, she's not an awful boss, but she just has this sort of haughtiness about her that makes her seem like she's so much above the rest of them and they resent her for that reason. So uh, 
another film where accusations of lesbianism destroy a woman's life. Here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) I actually really like this movie because it was really, it, it touches upon so many really interesting themes and homosexuality is one of them. I'm not convinced that anyone, I think there's a lot of bisexuality in this movie. And then I think there's a lot of like sexuality being inserted that actually doesn't exist. I think like Rika is bisexual. And I also think that she doesn't know how to interpret anything in the world if it's not through sex. So I think Marta, on the other hand, you know, we eventually learn after she is being held captive, essentially, by her workers, which, P.S., there is definitely, like, a weird anti, like, communist or anti-union message in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. The workers are all, like, just rising up to, like, witch hunt, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, because they're like, oh, she's too beautiful. Like, we hate her. Like, let's, like, kill, let's kill her. <laughs> so I don't understand. I don't know what that's about. But it might have been maybe they were trying to just go for social dynamics which i think is what this whole movie is really about like you know repression within society but anyhow i think that like you know marta we end up learning that she has this really sad backstory that involves being sexually assaulted and so she sort of seems to be in a place where she does not want anything to do with sex but when she gets these like girls because she seems strong and she seems independent these you know women are like showing up on her doorstep like with nowhere to go and so she sort of takes them in as these sort of daughters in a way and i actually i think this movie is trying to imply i think you could easily read it as her being gay like i don't think that that's wrong but i think the movie is trying to imply it's more that she just like because she can't have a family because she is afraid of men This is the only way that she can sort of get out her like motherly instincts. And it Mm -hmm. like definitely plays more towards this like mother daughter thing, which is like gets back to her washing them in the shower and stuff. It's never like there's never a shot of her, you know, looking in a disrespectful way. Like there's never a shot of her preying on these women. It really is something where she's trying to, I think, heal them through her own experiences it's like trying to make good and and you know it's her own therapy via helping others is kind of what is implied in this movie i don't think that it's implied that she's gay but you know if you you misinterpret it uh, or if you think that she actually is and she just doesn't realize it because she's so messed up inside for other reasons like and she doesn't know herself i think that there's a good argument to be made there but i don't think the movie is giving us that whereas we get a lot of shots of the other women who are looking at her that way and and the thing that's really cool about this movie is that throughout the film we get these all these women that are working at this laundromat and sort of talking you know just just shooting the the breeze and there's all of this sort of conversation about like men you know, like, oh, my husband wants polygamy and my husband wants sex with the lights on and I'm divorced and I'm never going to get married again. Or, oh, my you know, child is such a pain and I can't deal with it, you know. And so there's all of this talk about like how much they don't like men, but then how much they're forced to deal with men and, you know, kind of like these commentaries on like 
how unhappy they all are. And then they, they see this woman who seems strong and independent and they all jump on her. And, you know, even when they're taunting her about her being gay, is it Mirka? I'm trying to remember the the names of these other ladies, but there's this one woman who's like really taunting Marta and ends up like dancing with the other, another woman and like discovering something. <laughs> like, oh, they do the twist. Yeah, but it's like she's big. like full on like, you know, having now she's having like these like weird like something is awoken. Like it's very mm -hmm. clear <laughs> that she realizes like, oh, wow, like actually this is kind of great, you know, so it's like this weird and I feel the same thing with Reka. She also is like seems to have more of a crush on Marta for having, you know, helped her. But again, it's like Reka is, is, is this woman who they the they describe as the type that you could have in the street or whatever, right? Like they mm -hmm. sit there and they, they really like degrade her. And so I think that if she's internalized all of that and the only way that she can get intimacy is through sex, then like, of course she's going to have sexual feelings for someone who's being intimate, but you know, chased with her. Yeah. What you're saying is totally true, but you're also saying, I think the filmmaker, the director, Henning Carlson, who I don't really know from anything else, but uh, I, I suspect that he thinks that Marta is gay. The way he shoots her interacting with Rika, it's so intimate. It's more than motherly, the way that it's shot. When Rika is lying on the couch, naked except for a towel over her, and you know Marta is comforting her, it's definitely presented in a sort of sleazy way, whether that's for the audience or for us to get some sense of what Marta is feeling. I'm not sure. There's definitely an exploitative aspect to this film, so I would not put it beneath the director to put things in there that, that aren't necessarily in the text to sort of insert a, a smuttiness of his own to it. Whether the play thinks that Marta is gay or not, I'd, the, the director would definitely have us believe that she is. I, I'm not convinced, but I don't think you're wrong. I mean, this the whole thing, I think, is like dealing so much with women's issues. And that's kind of why I feel like it touches upon homosexuality. But the way that it touches upon it is really, again, through this lens of like the fear of being outed and, you know, how people look at you with disgust if they think anything is up. And it doesn't seem to really deal with the reality of being gay. Like I'm not convinced that there's any love stories in this as much as it's like people who are messed up, even for Marta, for them to say that like, well, she must be gay because this thing that happened to her is like too, it's like, it's that sucks. Like that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like it doesn't it, like, you know, she has these whole lines about she wanted a child, but not a man. And you know, she, she talks about love, but it doesn't seem like sexual love. So there is like this sort of, you know, default lesbian interpretation of that. But to me, it, it seemed to say like, you know, she's close, but she isn't fully. So you can still really sympathize with her. <laughs> well, I mean, in the end, Marta is the only sympathetic character in this film, really. I mean, there is one man who shows up, Johnny, who's a, the delivery guy, who's having it off with at least a couple of the ladies who work there. And he's the biggest creep of all. Like he just demonstrates everything that's awful about men that these women are talking about all day long. But at the same time, these women are backstabbing. This movie is called Katorna, which means the cats. So you go into this movie expecting some cat fights and you definitely get that. Whether this is 
a sympathetic portrayal of a lesbian or just a sympathetic portrayal of a human being who's been falsely or not accused of being a lesbian? I'm not sure. That's the thing that's confusing is that this movie definitely deals with the concept of repression. You know, this is all these these women who are repressing their own feelings of, you know, desire and whether that's for striking out on their own or, you know, not being under the thumb of a man or, you know, something like anything, you know, divorce and children and, and all of these sort of women's issues. It also deals with the societal repression, like including, I think, workers' rights and in, and including like um, even the Holocaust comes up and really like that's when it really leans into that sort of exploitation. Yeah. Um, but it's also really kind of fascinating. It is this sort of like, you know, once they get Marta cornered, suddenly everyone's most violent and crazy impulses come out. And it's like interesting to sort of see how high the bar goes and who, how much people heighten it. And like at the end of the day, they're all women. So like it never really explodes into like full on violence <laughs> the way that say, um, what was that German movie we watched with the schoolboys? Oh, young Torless. Yeah. The way young Torless does. But yeah, it's like if you're going to talk about repression, then you're clearly talking about homosexuality. But I don't know. They, I feel like they really like make a point to say this isn't fully about homosexuality, which is a cop out in that sense. Yeah. I mean, you could say it's left intentionally ambiguous, but that's not telling you anything. You're left just with this feeling that what we all need is just a little more love and trust. And I guess that's true. And no more men. Yeah. <laughs> but a society of just women, as this movie demonstrates, is not a great place to be either. So we're going to jump over 1966, which is not to say that there weren't a couple of iconic European films that came out in 66 that could have been included, like Jacques Rivette's The Nun with Anna Karina or uh, Bergman's Persona. Both films have suggestions of homosexuality between women but the nun's pretty explicit <laughs> yeah the nun even even more than that but i also think there's a lot well in all of these films there's a lot more going on than just the lesbian issues but uh seem like those were a couple of movies that could definitely be saved for another day so we're gonna jump straight to 1967 and go to canada for the fox think so i think this is our the first time we've been there and this is an american director right mark rydell this is his first movie i think yeah i know him from like on golden pond and a lot of you know, sort of high profile 80s movies oh and you just watched harry and walter go to new york recently didn't you i did <laughs> so the fox is based off of the uh dh lawrence novella and this is such a D.H. Lawrence movie. It is starring Sandy Dennis and Anne Haywood and Kira Delea, our buddy. Mm -hmm. Keeps showing up. He, I have so much appreciation for this person I already had a lot of appreciation for. And every time he shows up, he's a different guy. And I'm like, here. 
Except he's always a guy who doesn't blink enough. Whenever I see him, I just want him to blink more. <laughs> this movie is about... Uh, so it's not... The D.H. Lawrence one, obviously, isn't in Canada. But this movie's in Canada. And it's about uh, Sandy Dennis, who's named Jill. And Anne Haywood, who's named Ellen. And they live on a farm in rural Canada. And they're just, like, living. Like, they have a chicken coop. And there's a fox that's been haunting them and, and coming and stealing and eating chickens there's so much animal violence in this movie by the way like in in real animal violence so trigger warning but jill is this very uh you know kind of sandy dennis character she's a sort of mousy and worrying type person you know seems to be a little bit helpless but getting along whereas ellen is uh, who they call March throughout because that's her last name. They call her March all the time. She is more of a can-do, stoic. You know, she she's the man, right, in the relationship, and it's, it's very clearly coded because she's the one who goes out hunting and she's the one who seems to do all the farm work that involves labor. Where Sandy Dennis is, you know, too busy uh, baking muffins or burning muffins or whatever. And so they're, they seem to be getting along just fine. We see them in bed together pretty quickly, but not like just, you know, fully clothed. And we also get this scene of Ellen masturbating while standing up alone in a mirror, <laughs> which is a little bit strange because you sort of, it feels like they're very explicit about them as a couple and they sort of talk about each other as a couple but it's apparently unspoken, which is something that took me the, the most of the movie to figure out. I actually find that to be a real problem with this movie because I, you know, right from the get go, I just assumed, oh, here's a nice lesbian couple. And <laughs> the fact that we are not supposed to think that from the beginning, they're just old school buddies who decided to start a farm together. It really affected my interpretation of this film and none of it quite worked for me for that reason. But I'll let you finish talking about what happens when old Kier Delia shows up. Yeah, so Kier Delea shows up as this guy, Paul, and his grandfather used to own this farm, which is who uh, they purchased it from, but he died. And so Paul shows up having come out of the Merchant Marines or something and not realizing that his grandfather had passed away a year ago, or so he claims. And he sort of shows up at the door and, you know, sees two attractive single women and decides to, he, he becomes the fox. He decides to raid the hen house. Yes. <laughs> he decides to stick around and tell them, oh, you know, I can do all this manual labor you guys can't. You're having a really hard time doing. And I know this land. And, uh, you know, if I do some work, maybe I can earn my keep a little bit. And they're sort of not thrilled about this. Obviously, at first, Sandy Dennis is very much into being welcoming. And he starts to kind of, he becomes a creep. And it turns out he's actually a major, really, really creepy creep. <laughs> who is, you know, when he can't conquer Sandy, he goes for Anne. And then Anne, she just rolls over. I mean, like, it's the weirdest, like, you think, because as you come into this, you think she's this sort of strong, silent, independent type. And the second that Kyrdulea shows up unblinking and ordering her around and being very, like, caveman-y kind of you woman me man you know like get in my wheelbarrow kind of. <laughs> you know like it's this weird dynamic and she totally falls for it to sandy dennis's horror 
So the whole movie is sort of about this crazy tension of Ellen being pulled away from Sandy and pulled away from the farm to the allure of Kier, who is the opposite of alluring. Like, there's no way that you can watch this movie and think like, oh, he seems great. Like, he's a villain. It's very clear thematically what they're trying to do. Like, she is tired of being the man of the house and just wants to not have to worry about anything anymore and just be the woman, be the Jill in a, a relationship. And I never for a second saw any sexual attraction between her and Kier. Like, even on his part, it was just like he sort of walks in and says, okay, you're mine now. The desire does not seem to be there at all. And part of that is me just misinterpreting what the relationship between these two women was coming into the film. But it's also just not there. There's no chemistry, and that may be intentional. The idea might be that just to switch flips and March decides, okay, this is what I need. I've had enough of struggling to survive and having to do all this tough work. So here's a man who can take me away from it all. Okay, let's do it. But, you, you know, it's... The problem with, with the whole film is that you sort of see what it's trying to do, but you never feel any of it between the characters. Only through the plot did I really kind of understand the dynamics between these characters. I couldn't feel any connection or disconnection to them based on their acting or how the film was directed. It's just sort of told me, okay, here's what's happening now. Here's what's happening now. And that was my real problem with it. I totally agree with you, but at the same time, it's sort of like, I, I guess I sort of got into it in the sense that it reminded me of like why people are drawn to cults or even like Orthodox mm -hmm. religion. It, it's sort of that we all get betrayed by Ellen by March because we are Sandy. Like we're in Sandy's shoes. Jill, I, I'm going <laughs> to, I can't not call Sandy Dennis, Sandy Dennis. She's always uh, Sandy in, Dennis. I know, but she's great. She's wonderful in this. That's not a dig. Like she's perfect in this, but um, I can't ever forget how Pauline Callen in some review refers to her post nasal drip style of acting, which is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs> but um, you know, we're, we're sort of in Jill's shoes. Like we thought that and naively, but that's not to say that this that's impossible because I, I don't think it is. I think that naively Jill thinks everything's great and she thinks this is a this is a relationship but because it's unspoken and because we learn that it's totally chase like we don't realize that they haven't even kissed until late way late again in this movie where that becomes very explicit i think that she was sort of like she kind of you know for 67 right like as this movie is meant to <laughs> take place and it's like she was okay with that because she thought that was probably all that she could get like she probably thought this is it there's no rule book how many role models and how many ways of learning how to live an openly gay lifestyle do you have in the 60s? So it was like realistic for me to, to sort of think that maybe this woman who's slightly sheltered thinks that this is it, like this is fine and this is what we would do. And, and gee, I want to kiss her, but I'm afraid. And, and so I'm just going to, I'll just be content with the way that it is. And then, you know, you have... Ellen, who we thought was on the same page, but it turns out that all she is is somebody who just is totally rudderless. She's totally directionless. And so when Kirdalea does show up, and as you said, says, you're mine now, flat out, she's just sort of like attracted to this idea of being in this like 
cult of one, you know, it's like being part of something where she no longer has to think she knows exactly what is required of her, you know, and that's to, to wear a pretty dress and to, uh, smile more (laughs) and and it's maddening because like you don't understand why that would be appealing to her but like she very clearly is into this idea of just giving herself up completely to another person and then whoever speaks loud enough is the person that seems to win that uh, argument (laughs) so then we become sandy dennis again we're we're just horrified at like why would you ever do this because kira delea is just so sinister and so terrible in this and then like this idea of who the fox is it actually like i I think it kind of jumps from character to character in a way because now you have all everyone who's who's sort of vying for the way that they want things to be done and ellen is this total blank slate she's just this like crummy person who has no sense of self and like is totally cool she's just weak you know she's just she feels adrift and she doesn't understand her relationship with Sandy. But then when Sandy kisses her, when Jill kisses her, suddenly it clicks. And now suddenly she's like, well, maybe I am okay with this. You know? So Mm -hmm. she's so wishy-washy and like, that's really hard to relate to. It's hard to understand. I think. She also in a way is the only interesting character too. March is because she starts out the films so strong and competent And you're really with her when you see her boredom with farm life and her boredom with having to deal with Jill and and do everything for her. It sort of takes a bit of work for this movie to get us not on her side, which definitely happens. Like, basically, when she goes for Paul, we're at at that point, we're like, oh, March, what are you doing? (laughs) As you were saying, it's sort of the fox jumping from character to character. Who is the fox in this scene? And... uh, are we going to spoil? <laughs> I guess we have to. Well, I feel like that ending is so out of left field. Let's not say how it happens, but we can say the result of it, which is what you sort of presume for all of these, quite frankly, <laughs> yeah. which is that the lesbian does not have a good ending. We have to get rid of the lesbian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a lot of ways, the dynamic is a lot like the children's hour. A lot of these films that we're talking about are just kind of recombinations of elements from other films, except for Manji, which is in a world of its own. But Jill, a lot like Shirley MacLaine in The Children's Hour, she doesn't really recognize her feelings for March until she's going to lose her. That's sort of, you know, part of what what you were saying, like this repression, this idea that, oh, it's possible for two women to be in love. And when it finally dawns on her and she confesses her love to March, it's not a surprise because we know that it's been there all along. But it's a little strange watching these films from the perspective of today where, of course, people are gay. There are people who live openly gay lifestyles, people who live every way there is to live. And watching this film that was made in the repressive 60s and and seeing these characters who don't understand that they can make love to whoever they want to make love to, you live however they want to live. It's a little hard to relate to in a way, and it's it's sort of interesting in a time capsule sort of way, but it also makes the drama for a modern audience slightly hard to interpret. Do you get that at all? Yeah, I sort of see what you're saying. I mean, like, it's to me, it's just sort of sad in a way because, like, you know, this is a novel based on a novel from the 20s, and here we are in 67, and it's still relevant. The themes are all still relevant. So it doesn't have the emotional wallop, I think, that it might have had 
But the one thing I kind of liked about, like, I like that this went from ambiguously gay to explicitly gay. <laughs> like, not even like, oh, maybe I am gay, the way that the children's hour sort of has this character approach the concept and then back away from it immediately. Whereas this one has somebody who sort of actively embraces it. I mean, the whole thing is about control and desire, but like this idea that like you can have this sort of self-discovery that you can't rebottle and that you can't put back and that this is it, I think is a much stronger gay theme (laughs) than the previous ones. It's more forceful than previous films. It doesn't tiptoe around stuff. Even when the inevitable happens, you get the sense that that was actually the right choice. This isn't a happy ending. You know, it's typical the heterosexual couple kind of walks away. But not with a sense of purpose and pride, like at the end of Children's Hour. Like the, you yeah. know, they, they do away with the lesbian in this one, and it's horrifying. And the fact that the heterosexual couple gets to exist in the end is not what anybody watching this film wants. And it's dark. Yeah, it's a powerful ending for that reason. You know, much like the last film, The Cats, Katorna, the fact that men are awful seems to be the main thrust of the film more than anything talking about women's relationships with each other. It's uh, look at how awful men are. Can women peacefully do without them? How do we make this work? Will this ever be a possibility to live in this male-free society? This movie does get that across pretty powerfully. Yeah, because this movie answers that question of how do we make this work? And it says, like, be super gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you got to kiss her. <laughs> I'm curious what you thought. The um, There's like this, this sort of back and forth with March hunting the fox and being unable to shoot it. What did you think that was about? I mean, I thought it was demonstrating that she is wearing the pants in this relationship, but still has the feminine weakness. You know, I didn't necessarily attribute uh, anything positive to that symbol. But you also, you were expected to sympathize with her not being able to shoot this fox. I mean, you see the fox look her straight in the eyes. And could anyone in the audience pull that trigger? Well, yeah, maybe some, but we don't want her to pull that trigger. I think that's like what they were going for is what you just said. But a part of me sort of feels like if the Fox had been like, all right, baby, like get on my back. Let's go. (laughs) She would have been totally because there's like she makes a point to be like, it's a male Fox. Yeah. You know, and like she's like just waiting for it to be like, let's let's jump in the Chevy. And anyhow, I kind of like that movie. It was weird, though. All of these movies are pretty weird. I found this to be the least absorbing of any of them just because I was kind of confused about the relationship from the get-go but it's a very literary film and even if it doesn't necessarily feel like dh lawrence maybe just because it's set in 67 it definitely has that literary quality and and here's a symbol and i'm going to tell you the meaning of this rather than you know let the characters behavior speak for themselves it's a smart film that didn't get me terribly involved in it But now we're going to uh, jump back to Europe and talk about, it's probably our third Claude Chabrol film that we've discussed on Cinema 60, Les Biches, 1968. Thank you. 
I'd seen this film before and did not realize that it was a gender swapped remake of the talented Mr. Ripley going into it this time. I read that it was, and even more interestingly, the screenwriter for this film was also the screenwriter for Purple Noon, the earlier, the 1960 adaptation of the talented Mr. Ripley. It takes a little work to see how the stories are the same, but it's definitely there. And the motivations of the characters, especially our main, you know, our Ripley character is is very similar. And it's it's very much about money and class and power. But basically, we've got uh, the street artist named Y, played by Jacqueline Sassard, who I found out just died last month. Oh, that's the Cinema 60 curse. I know. Every time we watch a movie, someone, somebody <laughs> dies. That's, well, unfortunately, it's just a... It's just time. <laughs> 60 years later for most of these films, so that's that's what's bound to happen. I'm going to live forever, Bart. <laughs> Well, don't doubt me. <laughs> I'll talk to you in 60 years about that. Mm. But Stefano Dron, the wife of Claude Chabrol, his muse, she's in most of his films, plays Frédéric, who's a rich heiress. She's never been married. Her parents were wealthy and she inherited the, the shipping business from them. And she encounters Y, W-H-Y, like the, the English word Y. It's the only name we ever know this character by but it's clearly not her actual name. She sees her drawing on the streets in chalk and basically hits on her and talks about uh, how she likes her art and you want to come back to my place and have a bath. So they go to Frédéric's Paris apartment. There's some seduction there and Y is you know, not necessarily into it too much, but she also sees an opportunity here. Here's this rich woman that I can have some control over. Let's see what happens. And uh, the first thing that happens is Frederic invites Y back to her chateau, her house in uh, Saint-Tropez, I think, which Frederic just seems to fill with friends who she likes to have around her. In this house, when they arrive, when Frederic and uh, Y arrive, is this gay couple that clearly like can't make a living on their own because they're just crazy. I, I, I like fluxus type artists. There's a scene where they're uh, making this ridiculous noise with exotic instruments. They're sort of the stereotypical bitchy comic relief. Frederick likes to throw parties, and uh, at one uh, one of these parties, there's some gambling tables set up, and uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant shows up. Paul is his name in this, and uh, he sort of seduces Y with his eyes, and uh, they go for a walk and end up sleeping together but frederick is sort of threatened by that and goes to approach paul and paul much like y sees the advantage of being connected to this super rich woman and decides to get in a relationship with her and sort of forget about whatever he was having with y so they but he ends up moving into the the chateau and it's sort of the three of them living in a it's not a menage a trois. It's not a, a three-way kind of relationship, but it's awkward because they all have slept together, you know, with each other at various times. It's sort of at this point that you start to see the similarities to the talented Mr. Ripley when uh, when Y starts to get jealous of the hold that Paul has over Frederick and knows that she has to do something about it. And rather than try and get rid of Paul, she decides to become Frederick. And I guess that's about all I need to say about that. 
I was having a hard time telling those actresses apart. That's and exactly then, the then, point, like, though. <laughs> exactly. And then the movie was like, that's on purpose. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't because Stefano Drawn is one of my favorites. She's so much fun in all of Claudia Roll's films. She's also uh, Babette in Babette's Feast. That's where probably a lot of people know her. But yeah, so it's just a, a lot of, um, you know, very sophisticated bed swapping without regard to gender and it's um all about sex as power and uh why why had to have been so unfortunate as to not be born like frederick to a whole bunch of money and she's had to struggle all her life and she's not exactly uh like you know just like ripley in the ripley books she's not a sympathetic character but She's a good anti-hero, and you definitely understand where she's coming from and her frustrations and why she's doing what she's doing. I think this is a pretty cool movie. I mean, I'm I'm already partial to Claude Chabrol. I love all his stuff, but this one actually wasn't one of my favorites of his when I'd seen it previously. I you know I just sort of dashed through all his films like 20 years ago, but uh, seeing it this time, I really had more of an appreciation for it. Really enjoyed everything it was trying to do. But you didn't like it that much, did you? No, I mean, but having not seen that many of his films, I think that that was part of it because I just thought this was humorless, even though I know that that's not him. I thought this one felt like the straightest of all of these movies. Like, it was just very much like, you know, that weird gay couple who loves to prank everyone. And like, they felt like total stereotype, like, you know, this comic relief stereotype version of being gay. Whereas like the two women were the sexy version of being gay. And then the whole thing kind of felt like talented Mr. Ripley, you know, the ending, like someone gets murdered. So it's like, it just felt like either your comic relief or you're like a sinner. Like it just felt very shaming. It didn't feel like it was having any fun. And I feel like if you're going to do something like this and really like up that for 68, this is still fringe concept. And so if you're going to go for something like that, why wouldn't you like lean in, not like Manji lean in, but like lean in and like have more fun with it, you know, and, and sort of make it more fun. Like if it's going to be all about sex, but it's about how sex sucks. Like it's not, that's not fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there really is no desire in this film. I guess Frederic, has desire and and wants people sort of collects people, but there's not, you know, you don't feel a whole lot of passion there, but all of her motivation is just to follow her desires, but everybody else is just using sex for power and to get what they want. So there's no love in this movie. That's for sure. Like I like this poster calls it a deviant Dolce Vita. And it's like, I I guess like, (laughs) you know, like there's only thing that's deviant is just that they're not straight, but the Dolce Vita comparison, it's like, well, I mean, there is this sort of emptiness, you know? And, And so I get that. It's not that it had to be a good love story. It's just that like, I don't know. I didn't think that it was very positive in any sense. Like it didn't even seem like people were having fun being deviant (laughs) (laughs) well except that the one very specific visual quote from la dolce vita in there where the gay couple is one is riding the other like a horse so that's uh that was going to spark a comparison to la dolce vita for anybody but yeah it's really just about the lifestyle of the uber wealthy who don't really care about anything their lives are empty because they don't have to worry about anything or care about anything so it's definitely dipping into the same pool for sure. 
it doesn't lean into the sexual deviance very much at all. Like the original La Dolce Vita from eight years before is a lot sexier than this movie. Yeah, this one's just weird. It was just a weird movie. I had a hard time concentrating on it. But I also like couldn't figure out what was happening half the time. And then the ending felt like it came out of left field. But you saying that this was Ripley, I was like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> but Talented Mr. Ripley like gives you more time to sit with what's happening. And this movie doesn't. This movie like ends with the one point of action. And then that's it. Like it's all lead up. But you also get the fun sort of, well, not to dwell on the ending too much, but you also get the fun sort of, it ends with uh, Paul coming back to the apartment in Paris and, uh, you know, he's going to find that Frederick has been murdered. Is he going to be, what, what's his response going to be? And you get to sort of assess whether his cold-blooded uh, need for, for money and power will be enough to like get him to choose Frederic's replacement and, and accept her as Frederic. And it's, I thought it was a lot of fun. There is a certain Claude Chabrol sense of humor where everything is kind of done tongue in cheek. It's very deadpan, but you realize that he's kind of joking the whole time. I guess the uh, previous films we saw by him, Wise Guys, Lego de la Rue, and uh, Who's Got the Black Box are more our comedies. Like, the comedy is is in your face and and this is definitely more of a thriller which is more the direction that Chabrol went with his career most of his films are murder thrillers he's always sort of analyzing why people decide to murder and a lot of that has to do with the class struggle he absolutely hates the bourgeoisie and has made countless movies about that and it's also kind of fun to see how he deals with that subject in every film the kill the bourgeoisie idea so maybe it's more a film for Chabrol Completus, but that includes me, and I really like this film. It's also caused enough of a sensation in France that Les Biches, uh, which means the does, kind of became... I mean, I think there's already kind of a suggestion that that was, you know, that was sort of a slang for lesbians, but it uh, really, in, in the wake of this film, it became quite a popular slang word for lesbians, so... It caused a bit of a sensation. But not nearly as much of a sensation as the next film. That is true. The Killing of Sister George from you by robert aldrich who just did the dirty dozen the year before <laughs> <laughs> they're like the same movie <laughs> <laughs> this movie was rated x when it came out this is right when they started their rating system and totally failed at the box office and then even the uk which is based off a of british play cut all the, there's like a, there's a really explicit sex scene in this and like lesbian sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was shocked. I don't know why I'd never seen this before, but I always assumed that it was, oh yeah, it's 1968 X. It would be PG now, but uh, no, this is this movie has some awfully racy content in it for the time. I was pretty surprised for an English language film from this era. 
Yeah, which isn't to say it's not like it's not outrageous for 68. If you're expecting porn, you're, you're not going to see it, but it's definitely like uh but yeah, all right, so that's that's the end of the film. So here's mm-hmm. the beginning of the film. Uh the killing of sister George Beryl Reed plays George Buckridge. Her name's June, I think. But she's on a soap opera. She's on daytime television and she plays a nun, Sister George. And she's like, you know, super celebrated. Everyone loves this character. Everyone loves the soap opera. But at the beginning of this movie, she is starting to suspect that she's, her character is going to get killed off. And so the whole film is basically about her struggling as like this sort of really, you know, she plays this like really graceful nun on television, but she's this like wicked drunk who is just totally body and like has a horrible temper, really hyper jealous and also is an open lesbian in her own house, at least. <laughs> we got one step further. It's, you know, not said. It's, don't, it's, this a movie is more don't ask, don't tell. But it's very, it's very open about it in her living as a lesbian. And uh, it's, you know, it's a stereotype still. But, you know, props for this, that this is just goes for it pretty immediately. And she has a girlfriend who's, you know, her flatmate, but 100% her girlfriend. Long-time girlfriend, too. Many years they've been together. Yeah, this girl, Alice, who is very, like, she looks like Twiggy, sort of, like, baby-faced. And she owns all these dolls that she sort of talks to in a sort of creepy way. But she's a very, like, sweet and a little bit stunted kind of girl. Like, you know, she's in her 30s, but she's... (laughs) Or late 20s or something. But, you know, she just has this very childlike attitude and so like the whole thing kind of wrestles with this relationship between those two and then when the this woman mercy croft who comes to tell george that she's going to be fired essentially or like is sort of letting her down easy and she's very sympathetic to her and she's very nice to her but because george is like you know again just such a miserable person that she's just totally like super paranoid and crazy about this woman oh i should the the thing that she comes to first tell her about (laughs) is that george like has a fight with the director storms out of the place gets pissed drunk and then hops in a cab where there's two nuns and then starts to sexually molest the two (laughs) nuns in the back of the cab until the cab driver kicks them out and she's in the middle of like london traffic and so everyone sees like that something happened and the rumors make the the news or something or like, you know, they get back to the studio and the, or like there's a police report filed or something like that. And um, so they come and, and she has to confront her about this. And George is sort of like unrepentant. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you know, like they, they wanted it, you know, like this sort of really just bizarre thing. But this, this, so this whole movie is pretty long. It's very miserable. And it just is this sort of woman circling the drain until just everything comes to shit. And you don't really feel bad about it for her. Like, you don't have that much sympathy for her. She's just a really horrible kind of anti-hero. But that's, like, really cool for 68. It's cool to have this, like, miserable woman be the main character that everything is focused around. And it's interesting to have... I mean, I'm having a hard time thinking of another female lead in the 60s that is this complex 
Yeah, I mean, there are things that I definitely don't like very much about this film, but it is really good at getting you to, you know, maybe not like Sister George, you know, because, yeah, I mean, she just is always flying into these rages and she's totally abusive to Alice. And, you know, yeah, she's an awful person, but it gets us so inside her head and it you know, we're so closely linked to her stresses and struggles and, you know, what she's going through that, yeah, she's she's kind of a, is a great anti-hero. This movie is, is also very clearly based on a play. And I think a lot of the acting goes a little too stagey a lot of the time. Yeah. It goes so over the top and not in a, like a fun campy way, just in a like, Guys, you should have toned this down a little bit. This is a movie, not a stage play. I mean, particularly Susanna York, who plays Alice, who I always really like, but I found her especially grating because her childishness is so pronounced and stagey and is like she's acting for the back of the room. That's those are my main complaints with this. I mean, you know, politically, it's not the most open-minded of lesbian tales, but it's 1968 and it's very open about the issue. And you've got these you know, women cohabitating who are lesbians. So the word is used in this film. First time in any of these films that it's used. Yeah. It's, it's very unrepentantly, you know, it, it's, it's a, this is a gay movie. Yeah. Like there's no point in time where that, that even comes up you know it's like it's a problem for work but it's never a problem for george in her life and there's like a really awesome scene where they go to a gay bar and you get all these sort of shots yeah of like these like women all dancing together and like they look like they could be gay it's not like a bunch of models you know that have been thrown together and are hugging kind of thing like it looks like an actual gay bar and so it's cool to like see this world where again this cast is like pretty much all women like i mean there's a couple of men who get like a couple of lines but this is really about three women and so that in itself is really cool and yeah i mean there's never a part where like being gay is a problem i mean it's a problem for her to like you know deal with male society it's like you know it's not easy for her but like there's no judgment you know that's cast on her stereotypes involved but i think this actually this is like the most progressive of all these films in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that they're so willing to make her unsympathetic, but still make her the focus of the whole film is quite an achievement. And yeah, I mean, there is, there's often, particularly when Mrs. Croft, the like head of the studio or whatever, starts to put her moves on Alice Like, there's something very sinister about that, the way that's presented. Like, she's very much like, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West or something in in those scenes. Well, this takes that whole theme about, you know, what when does well-wishing turn into, like, full-on gay desire, right? Like, it takes the stuff that all these other movies are dancing around, this idea of, like, that it's okay for women to be empathetic and super helpful and, you know, sisterly or motherly towards other women. But when does that line cross? And so you really think that Mercy, you know, is is doing just that, that she's sitting here, sees somebody in an abusive relationship, sees that, you know, that sister George is a total monster and, and wants to help out Alice. 
who she thinks actually is, you know, is more talented than George uh, says she is and, and wants to like get her out of this really toxic environment. She She's very British. <laughs> she's not like overly warm, but she's doing this sort of motherly, like the correct sisterly thing. But then there's like this point where suddenly something like, you know, snaps and like suddenly she realizes either that this has been the case all along, that she's always been sort of thinking like I can steal this woman away or that like something changes in her or it's like that's ambiguous. You never get the sense that she's all that impressed with Alice's poetry. Like, you know, here's this blonde who prances around the house and slinking negligees like from the get-go, there's really just one thing on Mrs. Croft's mind when she sees Alice. And the fact that she can step in and be kind of a savior is just her method of seduction. Like, she's a very different character than Marta in The Cats, for sure. Like, this is, I don't think anything changes other than she is finally willing to act on what she's really there for. Like, I want to get you naked and kiss you all over your body is is the reason is what it, is what happens in the film and you know what the whole reason she is spending any time with Alice to show that is not casting the best light yeah i i mean like the the women that are portrayed in this are all in very toxic relationships and they're all being toxic it's like i'm i'm really of like two minds about that though because on one hand i i think it really is super cool to have these complex and you know, not sexy female characters. Like, that's amazing for the 60s. On the other hand, if you're going to take this as you're like, all lesbians are this, <laughs> you know, they're the predator or they're this older woman, younger woman dynamic, you know, like this is definitely, again, it plays into these stereotypes that aren't great. But like, there's enough layers in this that it really just felt like it wasn't actually just a portrait of toxic relationships. It didn't feel judgmental to me, but obviously I'm not a 60s audience. And I, I, you know, there is definitely, you know, I wouldn't surprise me if people would have walked out of something like this thinking like, oh, lesbians, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you are a lesbian going to see this film to find some characters to identify with, you're not going to enjoy this thing. If you if no. you want to see yourself portrayed <laughs> on film, this is this is not the movie that's going to do it for you. But it's it's kind of a cool movie. It's neat, I, you know, like in in a weird way. And again, that sex scene is like, it's just really wild to see something like that happen in a '60s movie like this, and and to be so, you know, it's not, you know, it's like when people complain about you know lesbian scenes in movies looking like like a guy just watched some porn and then like put two women together, like two Barbie dolls and like said, like, you know, like uh, they got to do this, right? Like, the, <laughs> like this feels more specific. It feels more like not, you know, it, again, it goes down in a creepy way, but like, at least it's like actually like lesbian <laughs> <laughs> and not just like, Oh, she touched her boob or something. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like, it goes further than you expect. But a miserable movie. I had a really hard time. This is another one. I, I'm, I'm with you. I didn't really like this movie. <laughs> I had a hard time watching it. It's very long. It's just everyone's miserable and horrible. And it's hard to spend time with them. I kind of, when this movie was over, it really stuck with me, though. Like, I kind of wanted to stay in the world of this film. Like, I kind of liked 
watching the behind the scenes of this BBC soap opera, this, you know, this small village pastoral sort of soap opera and see how that contrasts with this very, you know, openly gay lifestyle in the, in the city and, you know, and just spending so much time with Sister George. She's a, re a fully realized character for sure, as awful and miserable as she is. And I was under its spell, honestly, like even though the acting at times took me out of it because of its staginess. It wanted me to stick with it, wanted to stick in my memory. I don't find that it's so miserable that it's hard to watch, really. But I also have more of a tolerance, enjoyment of sadism than you do. So <laughs> I, I would totally watch this movie again. It wasn't like I, I didn't think it was a bad movie. It just is it was a slog. Well, the best way we could have ended this episode is the way we're going to end it. We're going to Italy in 1969, and uh, we're going to talk about a very little-known film called Le Altre. others about this you know hip rich very glamorous lesbian couple where are they in milan or i don't remember but i feel like milan made sense just because it's so hip and cosmopolitan but uh yeah they want to have a baby particularly the it's alessandra and flavia alessandra is uh the blonde slightly colder one who uh you know it doesn't the relationship doesn't really break down into, oh, she's the man in this relationship and she's the female. I mean, they have, you know, one slightly leans towards the more feminine and uh, and that's Flavia and Alessandra's the, the slightly more in control, not not as emotional one. And it's Flavia who is really most passionate about having this baby. Alessandra is really into the idea too. They try and figure out how to get some dude to impregnate one of them and they both give it a shot they've got this neighbor upstairs ugo this young sexy dumb blonde guy who they're like oh he'd be perfect and alessandra tries to get it on with him but it's too awkward and uncomfortable you know she just thinks of him as a, this kid who lives upstairs and it doesn't quite work out and then they sort of take out an ad in the in the <laughs> no what did, they find a gigolo somehow they get another guy who's just this sort of sleazy guy with terrible hair and he just thinks that he's God's gift to women and is, uh, you know, would be happy to bed them both one at a time, either one. And uh, he's just too much of a sleaze ball for them to want to go through with it. Eventually, Flavia just scopes out some dudes on the street and flirts with one of them, plays some pool with him, and uh, and they, they get it on. And, and that's the end of that. And she has a baby. And, you know, there's very little conflict between these two women. I mean, there is... Alessandra gets a bit jealous when she knows that Flavia is out with a man, but she gets over it pretty quickly. And she's a little jealous that Flavia is also the one who is the one who got to get pregnant and feels like, you know, that makes, gives her more of an attachment to the baby than she has. But she also gets over that pretty quickly. Like this is amazingly tension free. Uh, I mean, they're, they're living in a society where it's shocking that two women want to have a baby together. 
and at some point, you know, after after they have the child, the the press sort of catches wind, is, and you know, with the help of that the one particularly sleazy gigolo guy um, who who knows what the real story is, and they sort of become media sensations, but they just want to be left alone. But even that ends up being like a stress on their life. But eventually, they come up with a solution to that, and yeah, it's a happy lesbian couple having a baby movie and sort of figuring out how to do it movie. And it's really a relief. Interestingly enough, we watched this one before we watched any of the rest of them. You know, it would have been nice to have seen this one last as kind of a uh, palate cleanser. But it was a nice way to start. I mean, this one is amazing. Like, we watch this one together, and we don't normally do that. Usually we just go to our own, you know, holes, <laughs> caves, and, and, you know, then come out five weeks later. But um, we watched this one together, and, and we were both bracing at every moment at every turn because this is an italian movie from 1969 i mean if you've seen any italian movies (laughs) you're full-on expecting i mean like we're in the grips of giallo madness like this could go any direction and i kept waiting for this to be the just the sleaziest creepiest like pseudo porn that it could have been and oh my god nothing happened (laughs) in in the best way it's like literally like you know there are two of them are living together you know they're dressed always like in this crazy but like high fashion their apartment is amazing the whole thing is like decorated everything every single inch of this apartment is decorated really bright crazy colors they're always like posing in these sort of supermodel-esque, like, you know, beautiful poses. You know, a man rings on the doorbell in this very like, you know, pizza delivery kind of way. <laughs> and then like just nothing happens. Like nothing. Ha- they're just like, oh, no, not today, Ugo. Like, we don't want to talk to you. Bye. You know, we're like, they're thinking, okay, we have to go like find some guy and one of us has to get pregnant and you think, okay, this is going to be like a sexcapade <laughs> through all of Milan or whatever. And it's just like, nope, she like meets one dude, you know, they have sex off screen. I don't even think you see a sex scene. And if you do, it's nothing. It's like G rated. And, uh, and then she's pregnant. Yeah. No, you don't see any heterosexual coupling at all. You see Alessandra and Flavi get into bed together but nothing intimate happens there. There's a bit of nudity in this film, um, but not not in a sleazy way. It's in a sauna. So I think the idea is that, oh yeah, women spend time together naked. Like there are other women in the room too. Like that's just what women do. Women are intimate together in, you know, in their lives. So it's just kind of natural that two of them will want to be in a relationship together and be intimate with each other. And there's, there is a sense that this is an unusual couple and Let's take a look at their unusual life. They're the others of the title. But, you know, there's no suggestion that it's unnatural or wrong. Everything seems right about it. And it's, you know. It's blissful. It's literally like, hey, you want to have a baby? Yeah. Okay, here's our baby. Like, yay. Like, that's that's it. And it's, like, wonderful for that. Like, you really, you keep expecting the other shoe to drop. And then nothing, really nothing bad happens. Even the drama, as you mentioned, the drama they go through is so minor And it ends with this very, like, sort of silly joke ending of, like, well, that was crazy, huh? Like, anyhow, let's get back to raising our child. Without any conflict, you'd think that it would get kind of boring. But I think the way the movie's kind of structured is that it sets up these situations where you're, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like, oh, now, now this, now shit's going to go down. 
and then it doesn't. And then, you know, the next thing comes along and you're like, this isn't going to go well for them. And then it goes well. And somehow it makes the movie just fly by the structure where no huge conflict ever happens. It's lovely. It's the type of movie where you're like, well, now I want to be a lesbian. Look how yeah. nice and serene these lives are. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's like, <laughs> it's just really like, I don't even, I'm trying to think of even like straight movies that are that, that are this blissful. Like, I don't think they exist. It, it, it even has this sort of like female gaze, like dreamy quality to it that like, you know, spends more time on lingering on clothing and on like interior decorating than it does on like their naked bodies when they are naked or when they're wearing some sort of like see-through shirt. But like, it feels very like high fashion-y. It doesn't feel sleazy. There's never anything, you know, like that sauna scene. It's like all these women and with different body types, it's nothing that's like sexy, you know, it's just sort of like a sauna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, and everything looks nice. It's never like ugly or anything, but like, it's just, it's just so weird and like the only thing the only drama is just like when men show up and like they try to usher them out as quickly as they show up because they're all sleaze bags but like yeah i mean like it's this is such a weird it's like it's such a cute movie though it's i like i had to look up who the director was which is someone who's who's named renzo maieto who apparently was a director that was actually named alex fale fale and I can't find any information on him in English. And I found some stuff in Italian and I couldn't find any other information other than that. He was like, just not Italian, you know, but he didn't direct anything else. And I think he like produced one other thing. I almost like, I'm like, was this really a man? Was this not just a woman under multiple male pseudonyms? Like it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, it, there is a certain exploitative aspect to this that certainly it's the producers are responsible for that aspect of it. I mean, these women are gorgeous, dressed perfectly, and, and you know, and they have this great wealthy lifestyle. Rich, powerful women with great jobs. One's an interior decorator, and one is a magazine editor or something. But you know, it presents these two well put together women, and you sort of expect. You go to this movie expecting some sleaziness to happen. So like there is a certain marketing to this that gives you certain expectations that w would help it in the box office, but the movie doesn't deliver on at all. So yeah, I mean, you, you could be right. Any of those hints of exploitation in this, probably not the director's doing. It's just the, you know, how this movie was able to get financing. Totally. And it totally does. I mean, it's very clearly playing with that. But it's also like, I don't I can't tell if like, we're just so far removed. Like, was this just really racy in 69 to show two women like having a really happy life? Like, I don't know. It's it's strange. I mean, I could see definitely like in Italy, them this being a, a deal in a Catholic nation. But like, I don't know. It's just weird. This is such a weird cute movie like uh, you know I, in a way i'm like if people should like try and seek this out if you can find it just because it's just so blissfully <laughs> normal yeah it's unfortunately very unknown and, and a little hard to find but i hope it gets some attention i hope somebody realizes that there's this uh sort of quiet positive lesbian comedy from italy that happened in 1969 and it gets some attention the subtitles weren't terrific there were 
times where could just be a cultural thing, but there are times where they were talking about things that were happening or they were going to do. And I didn't quite get it maybe because it was translated, you know, directly rather than idiomatically. And I was a little bit confused at, at times. And, but then, you know, the next scene is whatever they were talking about happening. So it's not hard to follow, but I would appreciate a well-translated version of this and, uh, you know, just sit back some Sunday afternoon and, and enjoy it again. And that's it. That's our sapphic trip around the globe. We didn't get that far around the globe either. No. Like we get to Japan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also think that there weren't many Asian nations with film industries that could have lesbian stories. Japan is one of the few. And, and, and definitely no Islamic nations would ever produce anything with lesbian characters. There's got to be something from South America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brazil, for sure, is, has been open-minded for a really long time, but I'm, I couldn't find anything. Most of what comes to us from Brazil from the 60s has a political bent to it, so there might be more exploitation-type things from the later 60s that would have fit the bill perfectly. But we got to most of the nations that could produce films at the time with homosexual subject matter. Yeah, and it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I learned something about myself. <laughs> I won't say what. I'm just glad I finally got to see some of these films for the first time. These sort of legendary, controversial things like Killing of Sister George and Manji was a real treat. But uh, what can we conclude from these movies? Just that it's getting easier and easier to be gay in the world in the '60s, I guess. Still not easy by the end of the 60s, but, you know, things are getting a little bit better, better and better. Well, I don't know about better. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is interesting. It's interesting to see these these sort of baby steps and, you know, to look back on what was controversial at the time and see whether or not that is still controversial. Like, it, it is interesting to me that I still find a lot of these lesbian anything that was like sexual in any of these movies still feels like it's something that would, you know, shock and titillate today, which is sort of silly, <laughs> you know, but like, then you think about some dumb movie, like blue is the warmest color, which I, the movie I thought was pretty crummy. It, it does owe some okay things, but the sex scenes were so male gaze. And so, yeah. you know, it, it just didn't feel like it was representing anything other than porn like, you know, this sort of male porn based idealized vision of what lesbians are like. So, you know, to look back at some of these two, it's like, well, that vision was happening in the 60s and, and we're still not totally over that vision. Nowadays, you get female filmmakers, you get people who are actually lesbians making movies, you know, then you're getting stuff that's a little more authentic and a little more uh, nuanced and, and a little less stereotypical a lot less stereotypical. So, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's fun to look back and sort of compare what was and what is and, and see, you know, what was also just what was brave and, you know, what could be done. And, you know, obviously you really couldn't be that explicit. Sister George really tanked because it was so explicit. It is interesting to see that Robert Aldrich <laughs> took that movie after Dirty Dozen, you know, like why, you know, like it's, this is clearly something that was on people's minds. So, it's just interesting to think about more than anything. And 
obviously I, I'm sure that there's plenty of writing about the historical significance and significance within queer history and stuff like that. <laughs> well, it's also interesting that these films were created for, you know, essentially straight audience. They were created with the idea that people would come to them for the sensationalism of them. You know, so a lot of the type of content in these movies you would not get from gay male films of the time. All of the Tennessee Williams films that we talked about have that context to them, but it's all, you know, everything's sort of hinted at and we don't see any touching or intimacy. There's this idea that straight audiences can be more comfortable watching women being intimate with each other on screen than they can men. And I think it just sort of has to do with this sort of image of femininity as, as already being, you know, a little intimate and, you know, women can cry on each other's shoulders. But with men, there's this idea that no, no touching, no, no intimacy. And there just seems to be a whole lot more discomfort that goes along with presenting male intimacy on screen. So it's not surprising that a lot of these issues could be addressed in lesbian-themed films before they could be in gay male films. See, see, well, that's the thing, though, is like that, you know, that these movies were made for straight audiences and they're catering to straight audiences. In a way, I think a lot of them also are catering to men, you know, like this idea that you are gaining intimacy, being portrayed through women. You know, I do think that there's women can be more emotionally open but the the way that you get this male projection of female intimacy that always comes back to the sexual i think is another like it's like a weird <laughs> inclination and like their own expression of clearly what they would like to do it's, i i feel like that's a, like a way bigger topic like i don't i don't yeah. know if that's really um... no i mean the the entertainment industry revolves around presenting women's bodies on screen or on billboards and uh you know the male body is still fairly taboo in comparison and that is a big topic and it's it definitely comes into play with with these films here might be interesting at some time to do an episode like this about men and see where we got at these various benchmarks throughout the 60s and how it compares to where we were with women's stories. But I don't think we'll come to any conclusions that haven't already uh, occurred to us. Well, I feel like I've come to the conclusion that these were less about lesbians and more about how gender is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, which is not a way that they would talk about these films at all in the 60s, I wouldn't think. Gender being bullshit is such a recent way to discuss sexuality and identity i feel like it's a whole other thing though it's like that that's what i mean like it like a lot of these films they don't always they didn't feel so it wasn't about lesbians it was about straight people's discomfort with lesbians you know so you lose the human angle like you're really taking this from like an observational third person who is like trying their best to <laughs> But, you know, like, that's not satisfying. That doesn't paint a real portrait of who lesbians are. It, it just paints a portrait of straight, typically male, but also definitely female insecurity. And that just goes back to the fact that gender sucks, like, yeah. and ruins everyone's lives. So, yeah, we can leave it at that. But I also want to bring up that we're making strides towards everybody being able to see themselves and their lives presented on screen. I wouldn't say any of these movies even. Les Altres present 
you know, something that's really that any anyone would really identify with specifically, but we're we're getting there. And it's still, as you were saying, something we're still struggling with. We could end on that. We could have a serious ending for once. Thanks for tuning in.